I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary, The Greatest Night in Pop. When I arrived at the studio, I realized it was the cream of the crop of pop music for that time. Today, we're talking to director Bao Nguyen. It was an ambitious attempt to raise money for famine relief in Africa, record a single sung by the biggest names in rock, pop, R&B, and country. But putting 1985's We Are the World down on tape was easier said than done. The all-star chorus had to balance schedules, fix tech issues, and curb egos to create the legendary record. But their biggest challenge? The clock was ticking, and they only had one night to make it happen. Netflix's The Greatest Night in Pop features never-before-seen footage of the song's early planning stages, including the writing sessions, and goes inside the studio where We Are the World was recorded. Stars like Lionel Richie, Bruce Springsteen, and Cyndi Lauper reminisce alongside musicians, engineers, and production crew about one of the most storied nights in music history. Quincy said, Diana, are you okay? And she's like, I don't want this to be over. And now I'm joined by director Bao Nguyen. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, Bao. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. So there was this idea about a song for Ethiopian famine relief by American artists. It was inspired by Do They Know It's Christmas, as we see in the doc. And music executive Ken Cragen, who was approached by Harry Belafonte, literally had the Rolodex. And for those who don't know, that is a paper contacts thing like you have on your iPhone. It had everyone's names in it. But the heart of the project was Lionel Richie. Could you have done this documentary without Lionel Richie? I think it would have been very difficult to do it without Lionel just because we wanted to tell the story from like a very intimate perspective. And it was really important for me to not have a film that was like a bunch of historians, a bunch of like music critics judging the song from a present day standpoint. And, you know, sadly, there are very few people who are still alive that can tell the story from start to finish. And Lionel was one of them. It's not that I didn't have enough to do. I mean, I was hosting the American Music Awards, just been offered that invitation. I'm about to go on my big solo tour. But one thing for sure, I knew I wanted Quincy involved because he's the master orchestrator. I mean, it it wasn't like Lionel approached us and it wasn't like we had a connection to Lionel immediately. Um, Julia and I had never done a music documentary together she had nowhere to kind of start. And she finally found out that she, you know, she was working on a project with this company called MRC. MRC at the time owned Dick Clark Productions, which produced the American Music Awards. And we knew that the American Music Awards was a big component of the story. And MRC told us to reach out to um, the producer of the American Music Awards, Larry Klein, who's in the film. And Julie called Larry, who lives in the Caribbean, as as people of uh, musical producers of a certain age maybe do. And she kind of cold called him, gave him this elevator pitch, and he told her that he's been waiting for this phone call for 35 years. <laughs> he Larry was the one who introduced us to Lionel. 
He knew Lionel for decades, and um, Lionel was, again, an integral part of the story because in a way that life imitates art, um, you know, once he signed on, everyone else sort of, like, came in line as well. Like, he called up Bruce, and he called up Dion uh, and Cindy, and so that just gave us sort of the, the authority to call up all these other participants of the song. Yeah. So he has to write this song with Michael Jackson and neither were used to working with a songwriting partner. There's a hilarious anecdote about how Michael calls him Lionel, which is how he refers him to himself and the rest of the doc. He talks about the pandemonium that awaited him at Michael Jackson's home. Can you tell me about him talking to you about that? The film is quite humorous. It was sort of accidentally humorous. And because Lionel was our first interview, and he told us the process of meeting Michael. And when he told us how Michael pronounced his name, like everyone on the crew just like started cracking up, like while we were rolling, you know, he calls him Lionel. And and I'm not going to try my Michael Jackson um, impersonation <laughs> right now, but but um, Lionel has a great version of Michael and he just says it perfectly. And he, he just kind of described the situation in such a way that it, it was so true, but also so humorous. It just it just kind of let us enter this world that seemed really unique, I should say. He called me Lionel. Lionel, I want you to check out Bubbles, the chimp. I don't want to hold the chimp. Meanwhile, there's a full-on fight going on downstairs. Er, 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 shut up, shut up, shut up. Er, 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 shut up, shut up. What's happening in the kitchen, Michael? What's going on? He says, oh, yeah, um, Ricky, the minor bird, is having a fight with the dog. Because the bird can talk and the dog is mad at the bird. From that interview and that moment of the interview, it was like, okay, this this story has a, a really humorous edge to it. We're going to make this also like a joyous comedy along with my original idea was just to make it like a, a heist film. And so we just added the elements of heist and add more comedy. And that's why I think the film is such a fun ride. So the wish list for the session included some superstars, some who were hot on the charts at that moment, and there were some whom they wanted but weren't on the record for various reasons. So looking back, it seems like there were a lot of like what if moments, right? For sure. And I think, you know, Ken Cragen and Cragen and Company's team, they wanted to have like very distinct voices that represented like maybe certain genres. So I know like there was a fight between Ken Cragen and his staff member Harriet Sternberg about whether or not they should have Cindy Lauper or Madonna. And at the end, Ken wanted Cindy. I think it was just like having that distinction between Madonna's voice and Cindy's voice in a way. But, you know, there would be a whole different version of, of We Are the World. I think if Madonna was on it, if Prince was on it. I think maybe in the age of AI, they can make a, you know, <laughs> a, a version with, with Madonna and with Prince. That's really interesting because I just was wondering, like, why Cindy or Madonna? It's just like that just seemed like such an interesting choice, especially when they had like Dan Aykroyd there. I'm like, why Dan Aykroyd and not Madonna? <laughs> that was like a strange uh, moment. Did you find yourself asking, like, why did you pick that guy? Were there questions like that that you asked that didn't make the cut of the film? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you asked because we did have like a a longer explanation of why Dan Aykroyd was there. <laughs> and I, by the way, I kinda, in the 80s, we all wondered that too, just FYI. <laughs> okay, so it's been like the 40-year-old question, right? You know, again, they wanted the biggest stars of that time. And so Dan Aykroyd had Blues Brothers. Obviously, he was a huge star in SNL. And th that was sort of just like the reason. 
And we went into that a little bit in an earlier cut of the film, but it was kind of like boring and it, it, it messed up with the flow of the film. And I was just like, I just want to kind of leave this question unanswered because it's such a, I think people can just have their reasons and understandings without me throwing shade at, at Dan Aykroyd. And, and right. so the, the question is left somewhat unanswered in the film, but I, I think it's not necessary to kind of like go so deep into it, into the film. <laughs> Right. So there was all this effort about who they could get to sing on the record, how they could get them. But what about you? Who was on your wish list for this documentary? Like, who were you most hoping to interview? I mean, for me, obviously, Lionel was kind of the the paramount person that we had to interview. In terms of like other people that were part of the song, I mean, Bruce Springsteen is like a hero of mine for the longest time. He's an amazing get. And most of the interviews were shot in what was A&M Studios. It's now Henson Studios. But Bruce couldn't make it over to LA. And he's like, can you just shoot it like at my place in New Jersey? I was like, yes, I'm going to go to your place and shoot it. Famine relief was important. I knew it hadn't been addressed, you know. And you're always sitting there with, like, the old, what can I do about it, you know. It was a little soon. I normally wouldn't have done it, but it looked important. He was the boss. I mean, he's always and will always be the boss in the way that he remembered the night. It was very matter-of-fact. And just uh, one of my favorite lines from the film is when he kind of describes how the song, how he kind of judges the song that, he doesn't really judge it aesthetically, but he thinks about it as a tool to help people. And it, as a tool to help people, it did a pretty good job. Yeah. I'm just curious, were you heartbroken about anybody you couldn't get? I wouldn't say heartbroken, but I think Bob Dylan, obviously, is someone, as as Bruce says in the film, is an enigma. And to kind of try to crack open that that puzzle a bit would have been eye-opening for a lot of the viewers and for myself. But at the same time, I think like having him as an enigma and not sort of comparing him when he where he was in 1985 versus like him talking about the situation now, because through the archival footage, he's still such a rich character. And he really he's he really comes alive in that footage already. And so I, I don't have any regrets at the end of the day of of not being able to interview Bob, especially with the creative restraints. And and we all know how how, you know, uh, shy Bob is and. And how mysterious he is. And so uh, I don't want to take him out of that zone. I think, again, what we see in the footage is is so poignant in many ways. It really is. It's very illuminating. And we have seen the music video, or at least I have, of We Are the World so, so many times. But I've never seen and people have never seen these other moments, especially these awkward moments, these illuminating moments. Where has all this archival film footage been hiding since 1985? Yeah, well, it's a good question because, you you know, nowadays we just assume everything is filmed and stored digitally in the cloud and all that. But they basically shot this for the music video and they um, also shot it for this like behind the scenes making of that aired right when the song came out. I think Jane Fonda hosted it, but they had never intended it to be, you know, a huge documentary, obviously not even, you know, especially not 40 years later. So the tapes were not stored perfectly uh, when we got our hands on them. They were a lot less than we had hoped. Uh, some of them were damaged because of moisture. So we had to sort of like bake them and, and try to bring them alive in many ways. Some of them were in the trunk of a staff member's car. <laughs> uh, so they were all over the place. But, I, you know, we, we were able to 
use as much as possible to, again, make a really rich and illuminating film. Uh, I should add, though, that one of the key sort of treasure troves of archival that we found was through David Breskin, um, the journalist who was covering the song recording process for uh, Life magazine. And through our producer, or our archival producer, um, we were able to get a hold of him. And he told us, yeah, he had these dictaphone tapes for 40 years. Uh, you know, he started recording as soon as the assignment started, three weeks before the actual recording process. And a lot of the audio that you're hearing throughout the film that's very personal and intimate and very proximate to the story and the characters are from his dictaphone. That That's something that he never imagined would be used in a film. That's when you do Vegas, right? <laughs> <laughs> I realized we'd never written anything together, and we've never spent time together. However you want to do it, it's okay. Doesn't bother. There's a choice. My God. This is the Sunday and Shirley thing we do. And I should say that the footage in the recording studio, a lot of it, even though we had the visual, the audio was very poor or non-existent at all because uh, sometimes it would just feed into directly like the mixing board. When, when Only when they were recording the song would the audio be recorded. But through Breskin's tapes, we had a lot of these conversations that you see in the film that were only through his uh, dictaphone. Despite some high-profile, like, internet beefs, I think many of us assume that pop stars travel in the same circles, know one another, but you saw all the raw footage of these folks together. Was it clear that some of them were meeting for the first time, that they didn't travel in the same social circles? I'm just really curious about just, like, the vibes when people were first arriving. Yeah, for sure. I mean, people are from all different generations of music, right? And they might see each other like across an auditorium, right, at a award show. But they're not in small recording. I, I shouldn't say it's small. It's a pretty big recording studio. But there's still like 45, 46 other artists in the room. And they're not used to recording with other artists. They're, you know, for the most part, they're solo artists. They're not singing in a chorus or a choir. And so for them as solo artists to meet each other in a recording session was really special. I mean, you know, you see in the film... Billy Joel says, uh, as soon as Ray Charles walks in, that's like the Statue of Liberty walking by. And I think that moment like really encapsulated how everyone felt. There were obviously some people who were friends, you know, Michael, Lionel, but there were a lot of people who had never met each other. Like Huey Lewis was sort of the, the new kid on the block in many ways. And he was, as you can see in the film, he was very excited to be there. Yeah, it was adorable. <laughs> and by the way, I think that's how the audience feels watching these people on the screen. That's how I felt watching Diana Ross, for instance. Um, there is this kind of party atmosphere initially, and it does change when Quincy Jones turns things over to Bob Geldof, uh, the Irish singer of the Boomtown Rats who organized Band-Aid and Do They Know It's Christmas and a few months later, Live Aid. Can you talk about the importance of that moment, that speech that he gives to this group of musicians? Yeah, I think as Lionel says, when they all walk into the studio, it felt like the first day of kindergarten. And a lot of different artists that we interviewed basically said the same thing. That was like, it felt like the first day of school, which we all know that feeling. It's it's a bit of chaos. It's a bit of fun. It's a lot of sort of camaraderie. But um, it really takes the, the headmaster, the school teacher, the principal to kind of like set the tone, get everyone in line. And so in addition to Quincy, as you said, Bob Geldof, who, who made that speech. And that was 
you know, from David Breskin's point of view, very intentional from from Quincy to make sure like all these artists knew exactly why they were in that room, that it wasn't just sort of a jam session, but it was a very focused recording session aimed at helping with what's going on, what was going on in Africa at that time. And I don't know if we in particular can conceive of nothing, but nothing is not adding water. On some of the camps, you see 15 bags of flour for 27,500 people. And you see meningitis and malaria and typhoid buzzing around in the air. And you see dead bodies lying side by side. And it's that that we're here for. You know, you can see the faces on all these different artists because, you know, and just like two minutes earlier, they were all laughing and hugging each other. But when they were listening to Bob Geldof's speech who had just returned from Ethiopia, it was very telling of how impactful those words were on all those artists. So people likely don't know that the song was recorded in reverse, that the all-star chorus at the end was recorded before the verses at the beginning. And when it came time for all these great musicians to start singing in front of each other, it seems like some of them became a little bit cowed, like a little bit timid, right? I mean, can you imagine just being in a room full of the greatest musicians of not just their generation, but of a lot of different generations? And again, they're used to recording in like a booth by themselves. And Quincy to to have all those artists sort of look at each other in a half circle. Again, there's there's this strategy. Quincy's called the general for many reasons by some of those artists. But he knew that that was the only way that they were going to achieve what they needed that night. And I, I can only try to understand how these artists felt, but I, I don't think I can ever feel that way. It's just like if you had, for me as a filmmaker, having 10 of my favorite directors of all, or 46 of my favorite directors of all time shooting a film at the same time in the same space, like th- there'd be a bit of ego and competition, but I think more than anything else, a bit of um, anxiety. Yeah. I'm wondering, did they get the demo in the mail in advance? Because it seemed like they did, right? Did, did you get the sense that some of them actually learned the song in advance and some of them didn't? I mean, you got 46 artists in a room. Um, <laughs> there's bound to be some people who procrastinate and don't do the homework, right? Um, there's definitely some that are very studious, but others even didn't get the demo. Like Smokey Robinson didn't even get the demo. Uh, so not everyone in the chorus got the demo, but most, for the most part, they were sent out. You know, they were they were roughing it out, as Bruce says in the film. But at the same time, hearing the demo versus like being in the actual room is a totally different experience. So the real enemy of this session, it seems, was time. Uh, short time to prep and then the clock is running all night to get this recording done. And if there's one star in the room who doesn't seem to pick up on that vibe, it's probably Stevie Wonder. He's kind of like an agent of chaos at certain points during this recording. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think Stevie, as Lionel says at the beginning of the film, and they're trying to like call him up to write the song, Stevie works on his own time, which I think most artists do anyways. So no, no like shade on Stevie at all because he wants to get the best version that he possibly can. So we all, we all try to stretch out our deadlines, right? And so I think he was stretching out the deadline as well, not knowing the pressure that everyone was under and credit to him to try to like contribute things, but maybe a little too late in the game. 
Someone said, Stevie, they don't speak Swahili in Ethiopia. You could see the potential for a 17-car linguistic pileup. Hey, I'd be curious the alternate universe where Stevie started writing early and tried to include the Swahili early on, and they could workshop that more. But to throw it into the middle of a overnight chaotic uh, recording session was probably not the right choice. I guess we know why we didn't get that Stevie Wonder Whalen Jennings duet that we were all hoping for in our lifetime, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the listeners have seen the film. There is a moment where Whalen walks out. I think it's telling, you know, as a person who's not from Ethiopia or African, he just realized, like, I don't think I'm the right person to be singing Swahili. So he just he just kind of he bolted out of there. I think my favorite moment is when people are like, do they even speak Swahili in Ethiopia? <laughs> it's very, very telling. So one artist we hear from is Sheila E. She found mainstream fame as a collaborator with Prince. Now, Sheila E. believes she was only included to lure Prince to the session. I'm curious what you make of that. Well, that was I, I remember that interview very vividly um, and talking to Sheila before we interviewed her. And, and she was really kind. And when she started telling us that story, I think all the crew members were sort of just like silent and then there's a bit of like gasp in a way just because it was such a heartbreaking thing to to say on camera. And she's she told us that she's never spoken about that on camera before. And for her to be vulnerable and, and tell that story, knowing, you know, that Lionel and there's many other uh, peers of her that are part of this project. But she she spoke her truth, which, uh, you know, I think it's very brave of her. But they kept asking, well, do you think you can get Prince here? I'm like, wow, this is weird. And I just started feeling like I feel like I'm being used to be here because they want Prince to show up. And the longer they keep me, maybe Prince will show up. To Lionel's credit, he never wanted to edit that out. He was very trusting of us as the filmmakers. He often says in interviews that you don't tell Picasso how to paint. This is this is Lionel quoting. I'm not saying I'm anything close to Picasso, <laughs> but you know he was trusting in the whole process, and I think uh, it definitely you know that's evident by our inclusion of that scene in the film. That it is a celebration of an incredible song, incredible moment, but it's also filled with honest stories, and that you know things that we don't shy away from as filmmakers. I'm just curious because it seems like. Prince did an RSVP, but they um, were really expecting him in some ways to appear. They had sort of prepared for him to appear. Did you get a sense of just like why he was a no, like why he just was not interested in appearing on this thing? Yeah, from, you know, Sheila E's perspective, you know, it sounded like he was quite an introvert and didn't want to be surrounded by, you know, tens of people while he was recording his his lines. And so, I mean, he suggested that you do a guitar solo in another room. Um, but I think that would have sort of negated the whole purpose of the night um, if he did it solo in another room. Uh, I mean, I just I don't think he had anything, any necessarily beef with anyone. It was just like he just felt uncomfortable. And I think we all have been in situations where we might feel a bit uncomfortable at a big party. Yeah. To be fair, though, Michael did get to record his verse alone in a room. <laughs> I noticed that. So when I saw Paul Simon standing next to Kenny Rogers, I obviously knew the singers were not being arranged by height at that point. Can you talk about all the thought that was put into the arrangement of the singers vocally? Because that was super interesting. Yeah, that, that's fully due to Tom Baylor, the, the vocal arranger. And when I was just sort of like 
doing the research for the film with our story producers. It was really finding out like what parts of the process can be very cinematic. And when I heard about, it was called the choreography um, session. It's hearing this amazing technician that is Tom Baylor figure out like who's going to stand where and what their order was in the song was fascinating for me. That scene is actually a recreation. When we were filming that, it was recreated in the style of the rest of the film. And to like visualize how that would work, I was just like thinking like, oh, he's just got this fan of cards and photos on the floor and he's he's kind of just picking them out like he's the perfect technician for that. I think the, you know, the reason he chose certain people was that he wanted contrast, right? And so you put a Dionne Warwick with a Willie Nelson, that's unexpected and that's that's got a lot of contrast. Including for her, by the way, very unexpected. <laughs> very unexpected. I think everyone felt pretty unexpected. I think the only line of people that were kind of similarly clustered together was, you know, Steve Perry, uh, Daryl Hall, Kenny Loggins. But everyone else, I felt like Billy Joel, Diana Ross, Tina Turner. The first half of the song is almost to like grab the listener into like, oh my God, there's like all these different genres and they're all clumped together in the most unique way. I think, again, that goes to the genius of Tom Baylor. Yeah. So huge props to the music video makers back in the 80s, because if you've ever seen it, you know, it looks like this seamless one take sing along. But there were a lot of problems in that circle, including technical issues. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, we're we're almost like the anti-music video, right? We're trying to like break <laughs> apart and deconstruct what they put together so well. I mean, there again, there was they were shooting the music video, they were shooting sort of the TV special. So you had like a bunch of cameramen, all this lighting crew, sound recordists that shouldn't necessarily be in a recording studio when you're doing a live session. And so Quincy got quite annoyed a lot of times and and started reprimanding the crew, but on top of that, I'm sure like some cables got unplugged, wires got tangled, and there were a lot of different difficulties. You know, Cindy Lauper, her earrings and her jewelry were creating almost like the sonic sound that they couldn't pinpoint at first. I mean, that's one of my favorite scenes, the scene where Dionne Warwick is hearing her own voice or some sort of echo. Oh, just send me a Yeah. Are you hearing your old voice? Yes. What? Who is she? Get her out. There was a little panic technically here. We have some issue with some noise in the playback. Did I at one point I said, man, whatever it takes, we gotta get this shit going. This is this we gotta take off here no matter what. They never figured out what that actually was. And so there's a joke that it's a ghost, right? And then that's the reason Ackroyd's there in many ways. But yeah, they never figured out what that what that was. So with Prince not coming, Huey Lewis gets tapped to be a soloist in the moment. And it seems like he most remembers how nervous he was. And we do see that. Were you surprised to hear that Huey Lewis still just thinks about like his nerves in the moment? I mean, he's, he's the sweetest person in the world. And he... Um, I, it's funny because there's a, like a lot of memes right now going around of Michael Jackson sort of looking at Huey and Kim Carnes and Cindy and just like Michael kills his line and then he's got to see like what comes after. But I think the beauty of documentary and film in long form is that we can kind of really break down the context of what happened. 
and that, you know, Huey was given that solo part last minute and he had to fill in for Prince. And then he had to make a three part harmony with Cindy and Kim Carnes. So just like layers and layers of, of like scenarios that can kind of create total chaos. The demo didn't have any harmony parts or anything. I'm going to have to make something up here, make up a three part harmony in front of Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, Kenny Loggins, Daryl Hall. What am I supposed to sing? That was very nerve wracking. Oh, that's where I am. We, we, we stand together. It's on stand, isn't it? I think yeah. Huey, you know, he's really delightful in the film, and you could kind of see how nervous he is just through his eyes, through his body language, and he doesn't even need to say anything. But at the end of the day, like that part of the song is like one of my favorite parts for sure. Yeah. Can I just ask you something? Because as a viewer, it is so thrilling to see the take that you know is the take because you've heard the song so many times. How was it for you seeing all this raw footage and knowing like, oh, that's the one? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, they basically just did as many takes as they could. And then, you know, it would have been the last take that they shot because they were like, okay, we got it. We're going to move on just because of the time pressure. But to like see for the first time, yeah, those moments where they just nailed it, it was magical in many ways. And and I was worried when I was, you know, just thinking about if I was the right person to make this film, like, am I going to like want to hear the song ever again if I'm going to have to hear it <laughs> over and over and over again? But because you're hearing it in these snippets and again, you're you're putting like the visual to it, it was actually quite cathartic at the end when you do hear the song in full and the end credits. Uh, and so I didn't mind it because you're sort of like mentally teasing yourself each time you hear a part of the song. And then it's a bit of a release when you hear all of it. Yeah, if you hadn't played it, I would have been pissed. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I mean, of course we're <laughs> going to play it. It's, yeah, we have to play it. Um, so who knew that Diana Ross was such a big Hall & Oates fan? Can you talk about that moment where she sparked that autograph frenzy in the room? Yeah, it was like another moment where there was a bit of chaos and just like, they needed a break. You know, you think of Diana Ross as like one of the greatest icons of her time, of our time. For her to like go up to Hall and Oates and just ask for their autograph, it it seems like a anachronism in many ways. Uh, because you think it would be the reverse, right? But because she was such an icon, all the other artists felt like they can kind of be vulnerable and sort of like fanboy and fangirl over everyone else. As soon as she did it, it just started happening all over the room. Saying Cindy Lauper, asking Lionel or the boss, you know, that's dope that they want to get each other's autograph. And then they come and ask me and I'm like, they want my autograph? Like, wow, that's really cool, you know? And so I thought that was like a very genuine moment, a very vulnerable moment. And, you know, since the film has come out, people really have connected to that um, that scene. Another really vulnerable moment, and you alluded to it earlier, is with Bob Dylan. You know, Bob Dylan comes in. He is this, you know, icon in music. And when he gets up to the mic, it's like he doesn't know what to do with this lyrical verse because that's not his style of music, right? Were you surprised to see just how in the moment he seemed so like deer in the headlights and then the help that came to sort of rescue him in the moment. It's so lovely. Can you talk about that? Yeah, for me, Bob Dylan in the film is definitely like one of my favorite participants and subjects just because he's got a really full arc to a story. You kind of enter his world through a, a humorous lens that it's still, I think, really relatable. 
I mean, if you're surrounded by like the greatest singers of a generation and you're more of a singer songwriter and you're singing a song that's not written by you, I think there's, you know, should be a tendency not to like belt it out. And he's not a choir singer by any means. And yeah, you really just see it in a space. And whenever I watch the film with an audience, I'm always just like waiting for that moment where the audience starts being in on the joke a bit. Um, because it it is like a very subtle moment where you just sort of see his eyes shifting and his his mouth not moving. But, you know, moving on to the rest of the film, when he gets his solo part, there is also that expectation that, you know, now that he has a solo part, he could, he's just going to kill that line. But it's the same thing. It's He's singing something that it's not written by him. And it's a beautiful moment, though, when he gets the help of Quincy and especially of Stevie, who does an amazing job uh, mimicking his own style to himself. Stevie sang it ventriloquially in Dylan's voice. Audiences usually clap at the end of, of Bob Dylan finishing his line. So there are people in these in this room who have won multiple Grammys, who have packed stadiums, who have packed Central Park. The producers of this song felt the need to put up the sign, check your egos at the door. After watching all this footage, do you think that sign was super necessary? I think so. I think it just like, I don't think it worked maybe at the beginning of the night. Uh, and Kenny Loggins said there was still like an air of competition and ego. But I think just having it up there kind of reminded people of what this was all about. And as you can see, like progressively through the film, the egos start getting lost. And, and I mean, maybe being tired helps kind of alleviate some of those egos. But surely, I, you know, I think every move that Quincy made was like this perfect chess move that that really worked for the, the recording process. Now, you, you hinted this at the end of the doc, but I have to ask, like, what is the lasting legacy of the organization USA for Africa? Like, what kind of work have they done and what kind of impact have they made? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've been around since the, the past almost 40 years and they still do the same type of work. And every time you play the song, it still gives money to the cause in Africa. But I think it's beautiful that this film has come out and the song itself has been doing well on the streaming platforms because of this film. And that has just like revigorated the work that USA for Africa does. And I hope like many different organizations that have been spawned after uh, the song came out. I have to ask you, what makes this the greatest night in pop? You know, that title is something that we as the film team are like thinking just as a working title. Usually for me, the title comes after you make the film and you, you see what the film turns out to be. And just through the whole process for like just seeing these stars, these icons and how crazy that night was. It is very fitting for me now that it's called The Greatest Night in Pop. And it, you know, that's it's not definitive. It's it's still a debate and could be arguable. But when you think of a specific night where all these things had to align, I think it, it definitely is up there. And for me, it is the greatest night in pop because it's again just happens all in one night, right? Well, you, you sold me on it being the greatest night. I loved the doc. It's nostalgic. It's really revealing. It's really fun. I think for fans of 
every kind of music. Bao, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to me about it. Thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure. And it's, it's nice to talk about it now that the film's out and, and hearing a lot of response from uh, viewers. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to Bao Nguyen. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 